The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Good morning, guys. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Bible. It's good to be with you. We have been in the book of Ruth, which is an incredible little subversive story tucked away in the Old Testament, uh, kind of right in the middle of a crazy time of judges uh, in the Old Testament and Israel's history. And we are in chapter 4, the last chapter this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Uh, and the, the title of the sermon this morning is Having, no, let's go back. Having a Spirit of Hesed. A Spirit of Hesed. It's this kindness towards one another. Living with a spirit of subversive kindness, a kindness that goes above and beyond what's normal or expected. And the main idea here is that practicing Hesed towards others means gladly choosing to honor the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. And that can be applied in multiple ways and multiple areas of your life. And we'll look more at that as we move on through the sermon. But that's the main idea, the main takeaway today. Practicing hesed towards others means gladly choosing to honor the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. Another definition for hesed. This is by Carolyn Custis James. Hesed transforms legality into sacrificial love. We're going to see that this morning in the work that Boaz does as the city gates with the elders and witnesses. He practices hesed and it transforms legality into sacrificial love, gives life amid despair and draws one deeper into the heart of Yahweh into the heart of God. So the setting, the background this morning of our passage, we see on the, on the one side a comparison. So in chapter 2, it appeared that all of these scenarios were playing out at random chance. And really we know God uh, was on the move. This was Yahweh's provision, providing uh, circumstances and situations to happen Ruth running into Boaz on his field, and so on. But here in chapter 4, we have human choice sort of deciding the events of what's about to happen. So you go from God's provision, and now human decision. And then last chapter, you think about the scene that it took place in the setting, right? It was the dark of night, this mysterious, ambiguous sort of setting where the narrator's kind of vague, it's kind of intriguing. You're not really sure what's going on, but for sure it's in the dead of night. And now we go, we just completely flip the script. And we're in broad daylight and public in front of God and everybody, as my mom would say. And so that's, that's the setting and the shift. I'm telling you, this book is so, so cool. <laughs> the narrator is so smart. So I think at this point in the story, the fear might be heading into this chapter, chapter 4, the fear is that Ruth might fall victim to her own good reputation and Boaz's integrity, 
and not end up with Boaz. That could be the fear, right? That she would fall victim because she's such a woman of character and he's such a man of character that he doesn't say, yes, yes, I'll be the redeemer. He knows there's someone else closer to, uh, to Naomi in the family line that deserves that right of redeemer. And so we wonder, will she end up with Boaz? Will Naomi be redeemed? So open your Bibles, Ruth 4. We're going to go verse by verse, 1 through 12, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. So we get off the heels of of chapter 3, where Naomi and Ruth are having a conversation. Ruth's coming back to Naomi after the threshing floor scene saying, okay, here's what happened. Uh, he, he seems like he's, he's going to press in. He's going to provide for us if there is no one else. And so it says, Naomi ends chapter 3 by saying, wait here, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man, Boaz, will not rest until this matter is figured out or settled today. And then it says, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. It's not clear if that was at the exact same time what the author means there, but for sure it was probably that Boaz gets back home from the threshing floor early in the morning, and soon after he heads out to the city gate as people are on their way out to work in the fields. And so, when the kinsman redeemer, the nearer kinsman, had uh, rather when the near when the nearer kinsman redeemer had mentioned he had mentioned came along Boaz says come over here my friend and sit down so he went over and sat down so it's interesting that right away Boaz spots this nearer kinsman coincidence probably not probably God again providing a way but the city gate the spot that Boaz goes to this would be a spot that. Most people would be traveling through. This is where the marketplace took place. Um, If you were going out to tend your fields, you would have went through the city gate. So that's why Boaz heads over there to find the kinsmen. And this is the place where transactions, legal transactions, would have taken place. The city gate. So Boaz knows in order to find out who's going to be the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth, he has to head there. In ancient Near East cities, uh, the city gate was built, or the cities were built very tightly with very narrow streets. And so the city gate was the one area where it was kind of open, and you could have witnesses and places for people to sit uh, to take uh, over court affairs. So notice that Boaz happens to be there when the kinsman is also there. And he calls the nearer kinsman literally. The author uh, uses this verbiage that literally means Mr. So-and-so. That was his name. Mr. No-Name. Not totally sure why he uses this literary device. But it seems like perhaps the omission of the name intended to spare the man's descendants embarrassment. Right? Because as we'll see, he doesn't follow through on his role or duty of being the redeemer for Naomi. Now, verse 2. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Not much to say about that. Uh, This is, it was common for the elders to be the ruling governing body over over the city, over the town. And so they were called upon to ratify family 
events like this. Verse 3. Then he said to the kinsmen, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Interestingly, Boaz begins this conversation with this near kinsman by discussing the property that's up for grabs, and he kind of leaves out, you know, Ruth. Uh, it's likely that Boaz and the nearer kinsman and Elimelech, the three of them, uh, were probably related on some level, like maybe distant cousins would have been related. So he uses the word our brother to refer to Elimelech when he's talking to the nearer kinsman, but in reality, he's, he's using kind of a euphemism that would have been like, you know, our relative, our family relative. And so likely they were cousins. Now, quickly, I want to talk for a moment about the role of a redeemer. What exactly does the kinsman redeemer do? Oshawa talked this, about this a few weeks ago, but here's a helpful definition. In the Old Testament, this powerlessness, right, the, the, the person who needs to be redeemed is powerless, This powerlessness is a key condition of those requiring redemption. Those redeemed were formally held under the authority or control of another, and in that state were not able to gain release under their own power. You think about the Exodus, right? Being under the hand of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, the Israelites were powerless, and they needed what? A redeemer. They needed to be redeemed out of the land of Egypt. Or their time under the authority of the foreign power, Babylon. In both scenarios, the Israelites are utterly powerless to break themselves out of their bondage. They need someone from outside themselves to help. So, Boaz and Ruth's son, potential son, would not carry Boaz's last name. Should Boaz be the redeemer... This is really interesting. He would not carry, the son would not carry Boaz's last name. Rather, he would be called Obed Elimelech. In a way, Boaz then resurrects Elimelech by bringing the family name back to life in the child of Obed, this child that is to come. And that's courtesy of our very own Oshawa Hawthorne. This is the power of Hesed kindness, you guys. Boaz is willing to risk not only losing land, should he be the redeemer, and he gain the land of Naomi and Elimelech to this potential son who would be born, but he also doesn't even get to name the son. The son carries the name of this dead man, Elimelech. This is Hesed kindness. Now, verse 4. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line. So, Mr. So-and-so, he says, I will redeem it. Right? Which literally means like, I myself will serve as the Redeemer. I'm willing to do this. So one can easily imagine this Redeemer smiling to himself at his good fortune. Right? For very little money, he's going to carry out a respected family duty, being the Redeemer. And even at the same time, perhaps enhance his civil reputation among the witnesses, the town, 
and his neighbors. Financially then, this investment that he was going to make to become the redeemer was really a bargain. And at this point, the reader is expecting the nearer kinsman to turn to the witnesses and the elders to publicly declare, to make it official, to make it legal. But then Boaz says one more thing, one more little detail. In verse 5, Boaz says, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Essentially, Boaz informs the kinsman that Ruth came with the deal. If he buys it, he's buying her in essence. And he would be responsible for her and Naomi. And we'll come back to this idea of buying a, a wife, a person. But Boaz refers to the name and the clan of Elimelech when he says, in order to maintain the name of the dead. So now, one must fully grasp how important it was for an Israelite to have an heir living on family land. We have to fully grasp how important it was for an Israelite to have an heir living on the family land. The loss of land and heirs amounted to personal annihilation at this time. The greatest tragedy imaginable. An Israelite's afterlife depended upon having descendants living, literally, physically, on ancestral soil. Without them, he ceased to exist. Thus, the purpose here was not simply to retain the land or to care for Ruth, but to ensure that Elimelech's family line survived. So by introducing the element of marriage, it's likely here that Boaz was trying to scare off this nearer kinsman. He was strategic. So we feel the tension as Boaz puts this stipulation on the deal. Will the nearer kinsman accept this new condition and claim both Ruth and the land, or will he waive his rights? Let's keep going. Verse 6. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. The closer kinsman, he initially agrees to the role of redeemer for the sake of Naomi, but he quickly changes his mind. Why? Because Boaz began by only mentioning the property and this Naomi Right, This older, aging, probably can't have any sons, Naomi. And so he thought, not a bad deal. I'll, I'll fulfill my duty. But as soon as Boaz mentions Ruth, the Moabite widow, is a part of the situation, the nearer kinsman quickly changes his tune, doesn't he? And this is due to the fact that by solely redeeming Naomi, the kinsman has a very low chance of needing to worry of Naomi having a male heir. Therefore, the kinsman would simply inherit her land, right? And all he would have to do is tend the land. It's probably not been taken care of for a while. And all he has to do is go in, tend the land, and in a few seasons, he's going to be making profit from the harvests that will more than pay for the cost that he, he paid to purchase the land to redeem it for the sake of Naomi. And he doesn't have to worry that if Naomi has a son, that that son will take the land uh, upon his birth. Rather, his, his own sons, the kinsman redeemer's own sons, 
that he already has will be able to add this new land to their inheritance. So it's literally a great investment until Ruth, the Moabite widow, the, the younger Moabite widow, who is, as, as far as we can tell from chapter 1, barren. She hasn't had any children in 10 years or so of marriage until her husband died, but she is much younger, and so the chance of her having children is much higher. Suddenly, then, the original lucrative investment becomes a high-stakes gamble. If the near kinsman redeemer marries Ruth and she remains barren, he will inherit everything. But if she conceives a son, her son will inherit Elimelech's land. Everything the nearer kinsman invests will go to Ruth's son, and his own sons will receive less. So, you contrast this response of the nearer kinsman to that of Orpah in chapter 1. Do you remember Orpah and Ruth are the daughters-in-law of Naomi? They both have lost their husbands. Naomi says, please go back to the land of your fathers to be redeemed, to be taken care of, to find new husbands. Leave me, I'll be fine she, she knew she wouldn't be fine, but that's what she said. I'll be okay. You go. You go. Please go. And now Orpah agrees. Ruth stays, right? She shows that hesed kindness towards Naomi, this subversive kindness and love and rugged commitment to Naomi. Orpah, on the other hand, doesn't. She chooses to say, okay, I'll head back to the land of my fathers. Did she do the wrong thing? No, she didn't. She acted perfectly within the letter of the law. She did what she was set, what was sensible at that time. The same is true here for the nearer kinsman, right? His, his role isn't to, he doesn't have to redeem this land and thus put his own family in jeopardy by taking away from their profit. If he invests in this land that Naomi has, the land of Elimelech, and she, Ruth does end up having a son, All that time, that energy, that investment, the money that it took to tend those fields to produce that harvest is gone. He doesn't see any of it. His sons don't see any of it. And so it wasn't wrong for him to say, actually, no thanks. So the comparison and sensibility of Orpah and the nearer kinsman simply highlights the Hesed kindness of Boaz. They did not do what they could have done and obeyed the law. Boaz does what he doesn't have to do and honors the spirit of the law. So the letter of the law states, for example, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Don't do to someone else what you don't want them to do to you. That's practicing the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law says this. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. It's not just restrictive in in holding back from hurting someone else because you don't want to be hurt. It's actually a forward, positive, taking action. Doing to others what you would want them to do to you. Practicing hesed towards others means gladly choosing then to honor the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. So, Carolyn Custis, James, one more time. She says, the letter of the law required a childless man's brother to marry and impregnate his widow. In this situation, Boaz and Mr. No Name could walk away with a clear conscience, for they were not Elimelech's brother. 
And Naomi would never get pregnant. The spirit of the law, however, said, save the family, which binds the hearts of Yahweh's children and moves them to find a way to do the impossible. That's the difference. Now, verse 7. This, by the way, is the, kind of one of the only times in the whole book that you, you hear directly from the narrator himself. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So, two parties involved in the process of claiming both the land and the position of redeemer would exchange one or two sandals. They didn't shake hands, they traded shoes. Okay? The deal wasn't done until you traded your sandal. This is the way it was. If, as seems likely, the speaker, which is the first redeemer here, the nearer kinsman, was the one who removed the sandal, apparently the one waving his right gave the footgear to the other party, right? So the nearer kinsman is basically, by giving his sandal to Boaz, is saying, I waive my right of claiming this land, of claiming redemption for Naomi and Ruth. So what's the significance of removing a sandal? In the Old Testament, feet symbolized power, possession, and domination. So when Moses removes his shoes... Uh, he acknowledges Yahweh's lordship, right? You are the powerful one, right? And, he, and, he, and he's showing Yahweh that quite literally by taking off his shoes, his dominance, and saying, no, 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 Yahweh is powerful. You think about David, when he walked barefoot, right? It showed his powerlessness and his hum- humiliation. In some ancient texts, it says to validate a transfer of real estate, the owner the old owner of a property would literally lift up his foot from the property and take the place of the new owner's foot and put it there on the property. So they would swap in a physical sense places. Wouldn't that be nice if that's all it took to buy a house in Portland? <laughs> Closing costs, just, set your, just put your foot right there and you're good to go. So throughout the Old Testament, to set foot on land... Was, a symbolic, uh, was symbolic of taking ownership of it. And as time had passed, it seems that this tradition had evolved into not only the right of property, but also the right of marriage. In Ruth 4, it involved both land and marriage for the surviving widow. In that regard, it's kind of curious, right? You remember in chapter 3, what does Ruth do on the threshing floor? She uncovers Boaz's feet. And so there's this weird kind of what's going on here. We're not sure if there's something sexual implied. And again, here, we wonder if this is another allusion to marriage because there's a sexual connotation with feet. We're not sure. The narrator is vague. But we'll see. Verse 8. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. So, A kinsman now had no rights, no responsibilities to care for Elimelech's land or to provide him an heir to take his land. He exits the story, never to be heard of again. The nearer kinsman does not do hesed to his relative Elimelech, his dead relative Elimelech. 
Ironically, the man who seeks to preserve his inheritance, this near no-name kinsman redeemer, the man who seeks to preserve his inheritance loses his own name in the process. He's Mr. So-and-so. No one remembers the real name of Mr. So-and-so who passes over, the Bo- over to Boaz the right to redeem. This book is so cool. Verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. This is the first time in the entire uh, story of Ruth since chapter 1 that the entire family of Elimelech is named, which kind of puts a nice bow on their redemption. Thematically, it signals that their tragic story might be coming to completion. So, verse 10. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Milan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from among the town records. Today you are witnesses. So, Significantly, this simple declaration tied up multiple thematic loose ends in the book. First, it finally grants Ruth's earlier petition for marriage that she makes to Boaz, right? Her risk-taking ask of Boaz to marry her. Second, it provided security and reward for both Naomi and Boaz, for which they both asked and prayed for, for Ruth. Further, as Boaz's wife, Ruth finally enjoyed full membership in the covenant community of Israel. So by appealing to Yahweh for blessing Ruth, the community acknowledged that Ruth and Israel shares the same God now. The townspeople explicitly compared Ruth to Israel's founding mothers, as we'll see here in a moment. This comparison is another thematic loose end. The entrance of Ruth into Israel officially. And it's, it feels almost strange to think of that as an official thing because Ruth has been living as if she were an Israelite the entire book. She's practicing Hesed love and kindness towards others in a time when very few were willing to do so. And so it almost feels like, well, yeah, of course she's an Israelite. Like She's been practicing Torah the whole time. So back to the issue What does it mean to buy someone to be your wife? How does one acquire another person from this passage? Lord, help me. So brides during this time were not the property of their husbands. But there was a bride bride price in ancient Near East marriages. So the groom is paying a bride price for the bride... But the father of the bride is also giving a dowry. And often the bride price from the groom and the dowry of the father of the bride were very similar in size and scope. So it's it's almost like the, the husband would have been thinking, wow, she's so valuable. She's so special. I want to show how valuable she is to me, what she means to me by by doing it, putting my money where my mouth is. I'm not just going to tell you that you're beautiful, that you're valuable. I want to show you by offering this gift. And likewise, the father, 
right, doting on his daughter that he loves, says, my, my girl is so precious. I'm going to show you how, how beautiful you are. Here's this gift. I think that that's more the tone, or at least the way it would have started this tradition, and it may have morphed into something a little bit more cold and legalistic. So, firstly, you need to be able to show that you can provide for your potential bride, and you do this by paying a high bride price, a beautiful wedding, jewelry, diamonds, the whole nine. So, if you give a high bride price for your bride, what you're essentially saying is, the 12 kids that I want you to bear, I can actually take care of them all. Here's how you know, boom, bride price, right? Like, I'm a hardworking guy, I have this cash, I can take care of you and all of these children that I hope you'll have, right, to carry on my family name. And so that's kind of what he's communicating. So how did they come up with the money to afford the bride price? Because it's not cheap. There's two ways of coming up with the money. The first, um, the prospective husband would just have worked his tail off and saved for probably years and years and then given that, that cash or that bride price to the family. The, the other option is that he could have requested help from his own family members. So Oshawa was sharing with me that he's got some Saudi students that have lived with him in the past, um, foreign exchange students here for school, and he's learned that uh, some of these students, it's very common for them in, in, over in the Middle East for their families, first of all, their families are gigantic, right? The, the family isn't just the nuclear family. They think of the family in like extended, extended family. So you, you have 500 to 1,000 people under one family name, right? They would all claim that same family. And it's common for, at, at a certain age, probably around adulthood, that you start paying into the family trust, as it were. 500 bucks a month or 200, I don't know. But everybody starts to contribute at, at once they're of age, especially the men, to this family trust. And this essentially is like their insurance policy. Someone gets really sick, someone needs help with buying a house or getting land or whatever it is, they have this security net. It's a pretty cool idea. The thing is, the, the, the man, the husband, who would have gone to request funds, right, help for the bride price, it's up to the elders of the family, right, a few key uh, leaders and patriarchs of that family to decide whether or not they're going to give him the money necessary for the bride price. And so what's interesting is that in both scenarios, whether the man works super hard is diligent and saves his money to afford a bride price, or he requests it from his family. Either way, what's super important is his own character. If he doesn't have character or discipline, he's not going to be able to save enough for a bride on his own. If he doesn't have character or discipline, the family elders are not going to give him money. They're going to say, you're not ready. You need to wait, which happens. That's the key. It's the character of the man to show that he's capable of providing for a family. So, the idea of placing monetary value on human life seems a little strange to us, but it's actually not even completely foreign to our own culture here in America. Oshawa had recommended a podcast to me recently. Um, 
this man, this lawyer, uh, gosh, did I write his first name? I don't think I did. Anyway, Michael Lewis's podcast, uh, Against All Odds, he has different guests on where they're talking about kind of socioeconomic issues in America. And on this particular episode, they talk about how they deal with, how we deal with as a country with our laws, major atrocities. So for example, in 9-11, right, we lost 3,000 plus people. How do we decide, based on the gifts and donations and the funds of the government, which families are going to get which amount of dollars, right? Someone dies, it's a CEO, right, a high-level CEO from that tragedy. How much did that CEO, should that CEO get? What about the janitor, right, that, works, that worked in the, in, the, in the trade towers? How much should their family get as sort of a... We're sorry that this happened. Here's a donation to bless you. Our law states, as it stands now, that it should be proportional to his current wage when he died. So the CEO should be getting about 30 million. The janitor, about 200K. That's how much their families would get. 30 million, 200K. Does that feel fair? Feels kind of gross. I'm not going to lie, right? And this, this particular podcast, he has on this lawyer. His name is, I can't remember his first name, I apologize. Feinberg, though, is his last name. And essentially what this man does is that when people start to look too closely at the letter of the law, right, and they say, this is an outrage. This CEO should not be getting $30 million and this other worker only $250,000. Their lives were worth, this, this life is worth more than that, and this life is surely not worth that much. This guy comes in, and he's literally the same guy has done this Boston Marathon uh, bombing, uh, tragedy after tragedy, Las Vegas shooting. He comes in, and he presides over these cases and basically decides who's going to get what. And what he does is, is he practices the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And so what he does is he brings down the 30 million to five or six million for the family of the CEO who say, yeah, this feels fair. And that way he can give to the family of the janitor a million instead of 200K. My point is this. We have this concept of placing value on human life even within our own culture. And if you look at it too closely, the only reason they say in the podcast that the legal system works is that people don't pay too close attention to it. That when we pay, when we do pay too close attention, we're shocked by its unfairness. That the stability of the entire society depends on people not looking too closely at its foundation. Because when they do, they get seriously angry. So, when when the anger hits that point in these tragedies, in these scenarios, this guy, this lawyer, is the one who comes in to play fair. He's the political solution who determines what is and isn't right. And he practices, he says, even in this podcast, I would guess that he may be a Christian. Um, We're not sure, but he says, I practice the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Because that is what we're called to do. So, a couple more verses. Verse 11. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. 
May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephathra and be famous in Bethlehem. This is like their version, this moment, where they're kind of, these witnesses are saying, yep, we, we were witnesses, we approve. By the way, here's a couple of nice blessings. This is almost like uh, a, leaving a sweet note in a guest book at someone's wedding, right? Ruth and Boaz received some sweet marital blessings from their community. And the first wish or blessing on them is directed primarily towards Ruth, that the Lord would grant Ruth to be like Rachel and Leah. In other words, may you be as strong as these founding mothers of Israel were. These women, along with their servants, literally bore the nation of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel came from these women. From nothing, these two women built the house of Israel. And so they're saying, hey, we, we want you to be blessed in the same way with fertility that they are. And then look at verse 12, a blessing towards Boaz. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, the backstory on Tamar and Perez is not pretty, but here's a brief summary. Perez was the oldest of two twin boys, born to Judah under some scandalous circumstances. Since Judah refused to give Tamar his youngest son as a husband, she herself posed, pretended to be a prostitute, and she became pregnant by an unsuspecting customer, Judah himself, and gave birth to Perez and Zerah. Perez's birth was as unusual as his conception, as if pushing his twin aside at the last moment, Perez was born first, and he earned his name, which literally means breach or breaking out. So, like Ruth, Tamar was a foreigner who perpetuated a family line threatened with extinction. Both women were at first prevented from providing heirs for their family. Tamar, by Judah's reluctance, and Ruth, with this other kinsman not willing to redeem her. It's interesting to note that Ruth and Tamar are among the four women Jesus names in his genealogy in Matthew. So, that's the end of the scene. This dramatic public scene closes, and we're left with a couple of questions. Will there be an heir? Will Ruth continue to be barren, or will she be blessed with a son? Would Boaz and Ruth go on to be a part of some great dynasty, as it seems the crowd calls them to? Again, I remind us of the title, having a spirit of hesed, practicing hesed towards others means gladly choosing to honor the spirit of the law over and above the letter of the law. And so I want to ask you to consider, how am I living with hesed love towards others? You regularly ask yourself these kinds of questions. What would I want done to me if I were them and they were me. That's a simple one. And don't just think of trivial things, right? Like buying someone dinner and dessert. That's, yes, that's kind. That's gracious. That's good. But what about things that really cost you something? More than just maybe even money. But time, relational capital, 
Boaz's hesed was risky and not easy. So Boaz, possessing authority here in a male-dominated patriarchal society is a big theme in this chapter. He could have easily abused that position of authority here in front of the town's witnesses and elders. The application for us then is that those of us in positions of authority ought to care for those who are weaker than us. This is the first scene where the story enters into the world of men, right? Everything up to now has been primarily revolving around Naomi and Ruth, whether in the fields or talking to one another or spending time talking to Boaz. Now we're in the world of men, as it were. The the elders were these men that ruled over the affairs of the townspeople, particularly about redeemers. So this is where Boaz could have easily ignored Ruth's request. He could have taken advantage of her on the threshing floor. Many would have. It would not have been uncommon for her to have been raped and taken advantage of in a serious, grotesque way. He could have lied to the townspeople and to the elders and said that she prostituted herself towards him, to him, and he does none of those things. He holds his position of authority with grace and hesed kindness towards her when he easily could have ruined her name and her fate. He chooses to practice hesed by honoring the spirit of the law. So I wonder where you and I might have the chance to do the same, where we have the ability to possess influence or authority over others. I think sometimes we don't feel like we have authority over other people. We often think of authority as something that's restrictive, right? If you have authority over someone, you can stop them from doing something. You, you hold them back. But I want to suggest to us that authority also is having a positive impact on someone. And I think that for many of us, we do possess a level of authority within our relationships, in our spheres of influence. We have the ability to affect someone positively. And the spirit of the law asks this question, do you possess authority or influence, whether it's money, time, relationship, resources, that can positively impact someone else? And if the answer is yes, then you possess some level of authority over them. And to put it crassly, they cannot positively impact, right? This other party can't positively impact your checking account the way that you can impact theirs. Now, that's money. But the goal here isn't to leave today feeling guilty or ashamed or like you need to show hesed love towards every single person you come in contact with. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, the goal is to be aware and strategic about the opportunities that God has given you to practice Hesed love. Think about last week, Ruth taking advantage of seizing the opportunities that God had before her, that God had laid before her. Naomi makes this plan and sends Ruth to the, to the threshing floor, and rather than, than just doing what Boaz says, she says, Boaz, essentially, marry me. She takes risks, she seizes opportunity, to practice Hesed love, and Boaz returns in kind in front of God and everybody here at the city gates. Recognize your authority and show opportunities, show Hesed love 
when opportunities present themselves. I said this recently, but I want to say it one more time. Rather than ending our day asking ourselves, did I do enough to not sin too much today? What we should be doing as believers is starting our day asking ourselves how God wants us to join him in bringing his kingdom. Two totally different approaches. The letter of the law might say to us, hey, don't sin. You're prone to fail. Be careful. And we can approach it from that angle. I think the spirit of the law would say, but what does God want to do through me today? And I think that as we are renewing our community, renewing ourselves, and we want to see our neighborhood renewed, the, the, the Montevilla neighborhood, this is the kind of question that we need to start asking ourselves. Christianity is not sin management. It is a how is God going to move and how can I join him in what he's doing? Not tell him what he should do, but join him in what he's doing through the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word and this beautiful, incredible, little subversive book tucked away in some very dark times. God, I thank you for the opportunity that you give us to practice Hesed love towards one another. I pray that you would help us, as McKinsey, as McKinsey said recently, to look out for costly interruptions that we might be inclined to avoid, but that could be opportunities to live out the gospel, to live out Hesed love towards others. Would you help us to become those kinds of people, Lord? I want to invite you now to spend some time reflecting on what it might look like to practice the spirit of the law in your relationship with your spouse. What might it look like to practice Hesed love, the spirit of the law, in the way that you parent, in the way that you relate to your coworker or your boss? I want, I want to ask you to share with a friend, neighbor, someone near you, one way in which you might be able to impact positively with Hesed love someone in your sphere of influence. Share that with someone else and spend time together praying for that opportunity as the next couple of songs play. And as we do that, the communion tables are open, the body, the blood of Jesus broken and shed for you. I want to invite you to join us at the table to celebrate his death for us. Love you guys. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.